This is episode 48 of the Brilliant Podcast. And we're continuing, uh, it, I guess, probably the last four episodes of our conversation with Isaac. Isaac recently sent me a roadmap for what we uh, intend to do for the next couple conversations. And this episode, we're going to talk about this uh, film that, that was done, what year? 82? 82, it turned out. I had to uh, check. <laughs> yeah, called Call It Sleep. Okay, so um, there is some history leading up to that. I was just saying to Aragorn that until 1976, 77, I would be 28 and 29, I was still in a kind of extended um, nursery school version of the Situationist milieu. We had, um, even though the world had changed and we weren't activists in the same way, we had a, um, a social routine and a social network and a milieu where we all hung out together, mainly based on nostalgia for another time, but also based on... And something that didn't happen. Yeah, based on, based on failure and based on um, trying to figure out if there was a way to get back to... That sensibility, that feeling, that level of camaraderie that we had, which wasn't going to happen, and we, we began to realize that. So it was hard to give up that idea, but um, you know, life life intruded, and I and I actually had, I think, in a way, uh, what I would describe as um, a male nesting instinct. Um, <laughs> I met a woman who was a uh, bohemian artist. She ran around um, uh, Berkeley Telegraph Avenue wearing a red vinyl jumpsuit in the Andy Warhol model. Oh, wow. Uh, very cool, really short hair. Someone came up to her once and said, are you David Bowie or David <laughs> Bowie's girlfriend? <laughs> it was kind of like that uh, uh, polymorphous look. So... Um, you know, we met on Telegraph Avenue. She was working in a dress store where all the the only European-style women in Berkeley all worked at this one boutique. It was called Yarmo. So if you wanted to meet a non-hippie woman, this is where you went. So I met her there. And she was an aspiring video maker. So we had quickly, she got pregnant, um, we had a kid. This was um, 1978. We were kind of the first in the group to have kids. And at the time, her roommate, um, and we had the idea that we were going to keep separate apartments and not live together and raise the kid in this kind of European style, freeform style. Her roommate <coughs> was um, a famous and still well-known uh, French feminist structural, structuralist film critic called Constance Penley. Hmm. Um and she and two other um, women published a film magazine called Camera Obscura, which was pretty well known at the time. Yep. And pro, you know, all the French guys yep. and pro Godard. So um, the interesting thing was that there was a whole very amorphous uh, scene centered around Chez Panisse, uh, which was a very innovative restaurant, which I later became involved in that food movement. And... Uh, it was a mixture of European filmmakers, the best ones who were coming to the Pacific Film Archive run at that point by Tom Luddy, who later started the Telluride Film Festival and worked with Francis Coppola. So all these filmmakers would come around. Uh, Fassbinder, Herzog, Vim Vendors, Godard came. Um, uh, Martin Scorsese came to use the Film Archive with um, a famous actress, I'll think of her name. Uh, so it was a very kind of... Salani atmosphere, but uh, Francis Coppola was just about to release Apocalypse Now, 
So he was very, or actually was working on, he was very concerned that the critical intelligentsia like his movie. So he decided to pay f to buy Constance Penley, so he made her his mistress. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had several other mistresses, but this was actually turning into 1979. So Francis Coppola would come over to our humble apartment in the Berkeley Hills and sleep on the foam pad on the floor and talk about stuff. And he was giving us a lot of presents. He was giving us a lot of wine, use of a car. He gave her an office in the American Zoetrope Building, which is one of the most beautiful buildings in North Beach, trans near the, the first Transamerica Pyramid, for like 30 years. As So he was literally trying to buy her. Um, so there was this kind of mixture of all that going on. And so obviously that was seductive in a different way than situationist ideas. But he uh, somehow figured out that I was political and he had this was everyone said before he got lithium so he was extremely hypomanic <laughs> so he and i and a couple of other people walked around north beach uh at four in the morning and he was explaining he already had a lot of space there for editing apocalypse now how he was going to take over the neighborhood and make me be his political minister <laughs> so i mean I, you know given that the other stuff wasn't happening this mm -hmm. was you know a very appealing idea um, so at the same time as Money that... Money does have its own seduction. Yeah, yeah. But also just kind of, you know, buzz and... Yeah, but it, it basically was money, and he was a very narcissistic, obviously narcissistic kind of guy. But So I had it headed off <clears throat> at that point. I kind of saw that I had to do other things, make a living, for example. So my idea was that I, because I had been involved as a commercial fisherman in the Monterey Bay catching fish that I was going to try and find a way to write something, write books that would be as far as possible from situationist theory so there would be no confusion. I yeah. wanted to draw a complete line so there was no, you know, I can, I can relate to this. Yeah, exactly. So I thought, well, what's the least, this is now the joke, because it's going to be funny, what's the least political subject around? Food. And, mm -hmm. and the reason that made sense at that time is, because food was not political. Food was about being European. It was about being gourmet, epicurean, living the good life. But it wasn't, didn't contain at that moment a critique of the commodification of food, of pollution, of miserable working conditions in kitchens. None of that was present. It was all just this kind of, well, we've all been to Europe. And in reaction to how horrible and truly it was horrible American food it was at that moment, there was this alternative of living better, eating better, living well is the best revenge, but it didn't have it didn't have a critical component to it. So I thought, okay, I will become a try and write cookbooks, and this is my way to make a living, and then I'll go back and keep doing the theory. So. I did start writing cookbooks. I wrote a book about squid, and it was I was a, you know promoting it myself, and it was a small press. And back then, it, it's worth noting, just because I think a lot of people don't know this, that this was kind of the high point of small press publishing. So basically, you had, especially in California, a lot of small presses who were publishing not necessarily radical books, just books on new ideas. And if you had a good idea and you could find commission sales reps, to represent you, and you could, they would find the bookstores, and there was a lot of channels to distribute books. You could actually sell as much or more copies of a book mm -hmm. than a New York publisher. You could definitely compete with them equally. And there were thousands of bookstores to put the books in, as opposed to a few hundred now for this kind of alternative material. So I started working on cookbooks, and I became involved with a, a guy who had published 
something called the Book of Garlic, and it's funny to remember that back then you could not buy fresh garlic in, in, a, in a supermarket in America. It didn't yeah. exist. You could only buy powdered, unless you went to the Chinese uh, grocery store. So he had published a book on garlic, and it was pretty popular, so I came in and with this proposed this book on squid and he he was he finally said well i guess i'll publish it because squid is the garlic of the sea meaning unpopular <laughs> he he was like totally egotistic. so he had to bring it around to his way of thinking so i became involved with that uh publishing and the book and promoting it and the company became did a second book and uh encyclopedia pacific coast seafood because there were no books on Pacific Coast seafood because all the chefs and the focus was on European style. It's hard, to, it's hard to believe this was the case, but it was. So we did this book and it became really popular and I, I went to work at that publishing company. Uh, this was all the same time, 1982. Um, and at the same time, um, my uh, Terrell, my, now my ex, but my partner back then, had been married to a Chinese... Um, director later became quite well known in Hollywood and elsewhere called Wayne Wang and she get, married him for his green card and he had managed to uh, raise $20,000 in grants from the NEA and, and the AFI to make a movie about Chinatown unspecified. Uh, so he asked her, although she wasn't really a writer, to help him uh, work on a movie which later became um, uh, Chan is missing. So they started working on this project and they never really had a script. It was a story about uh, a taxi cab driver uh, who disappeared in Chinatown, but actually the guy never existed. But it was a way to explore kind of a Chinese mystery, a way to explore Chinatown. And, and this is San Francisco Chinatown. San Francisco Chinatown, when it was still a Chinatown. When yeah. it wasn't, when, you know, literally it was filled with fish markets yeah. and there was no t shirts, no jade for sale. It, it if was, you've never visited San Francisco, it's a shadow of that now. It's barely a, a, a venue for tourist trinkets. Bare, barely. Yeah. But it was a really fun, exciting place with a lot of great restaurants. The, so the, the Oakland Chinatown is, is a bit more authentic. I would say that's that true. Means. It's only a, a tenth the size. Yeah. So. So this all came together. I, I realized this was the same year. I finally realized. So this is 1982, um, the year that I ended up working with her on College Sleep. So she, they raised the money, $20,000. They made a movie in black and white, which you could, uh, 16 millimeter, which you could do back then. And they edited it, and it didn't quite hold together. So somehow they decided that I was going to work on it. So they brought me in, and they said, well... We have this old taxi driver, like late 50s, early 60s, great character. What about if we have you write a voiceover for him? And I said, well, you know, I'll try. And at that time, I was reading Walter Benjamin. And so I kind of made the taxi cab driver, the older one, be a Walter Benjamin character, musing about the city. Somehow that worked. And so then the movie was shown. It, it debuted at the new director's... Uh, portion of the New York Film Festival in October of 1982 and kind of a miracle happened. So there's this very curmudgeonly lead film critic at the New York Times at that's this point called Vincent Canby. And he was very powerful because, you know, it was even the New York Times was even more important back then because mm -hmm. there weren't so many other publications. There, weren't, yeah. there wasn't the internet, you know, that was like the, uh, the <clears throat> reigning power in film criticism. So for some reason, he went crazy about this movie. He basically said it was one of the best movies he'd ever seen, literally. Mm -hmm. and in, so, in print. In print. Mm -hmm. He said this. Mm -hmm. uh, he called it a matchless delight. So that night, uh, Wayne, who was staying at a friend's house, got 200 phone calls from 
people in the industry. So basically, you know, it took off from there. And, you know, I guess I had some role. I got a screen credit. The film was later inducted, and it was one of the first films inducted into the National Film Archive in the Library of Congress mm -hmm. very early, and the first independent film. And it was actually the very first ethnic American film. So Spike Lee came three, four years later with uh, his films, but this was Chinese-American, so it was the first kind of authentic mm. film in that category. And it, it ended up being you know, very popular and helped their careers. But at the same time, I was still thinking, uh, and this was also important, it's important to, to remember this moment, this was kind of the high point of the punk scene in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. There was Mobaway Gardens. It was, you know, three or four years after the Sex Pistols. But the reigning um, critical, radical, antisocial activity in the Bay Area at that point was punk. So um, I started writing a text <clears throat> where I was trying to analyze in a very uh, Guy Debord, uh, von Clausewitz way, the strategic forces in society. So I... I divided it up into six groups and how these would, were interacting. I wrote a text, and to my surprise, when uh, Terrell read this, because she really hadn't been so involved in this theory, she was a filmmaker, she said, well, let's make a video out of one of the sections. And that section was called the cadre. And in the French world, the cadre is the office worker. But it's really, in fact, the yuppie. It's the person who wants mm. to have his cake and eat it too, who DeBoer says enjoys um, the, the joy of submission and the thrill of refusal, <laughs> which, you know, I, I've always thought that was one of the best parts of that book, Veritable Scission, was the analysis of the, of the cadre. So we um, thought... Actually, if, if I can pause sure. you for a second. Can you explain a little bit? Cadre has a diff very different meaning in English. Can right. you ex do you have any sense as to why the etymology of that is different, so different in French? Because if we were going to read a critique of the cadre in the U.S., we wouldn't read it as a critique of yuppies. No, I know. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a, it's a different word actually. So the the cadre is really like the core or the so it's organization. A French slang term. Yeah, it's a, it's a French slang term exactly. Okay. okay right. Um, and it was very confusing for, for people. We had to explain that. But really, he he was not talking about. The cadre meaning, you would have thought he was talking about the cadre of the Communist Party, yeah. which is the core, yeah. the yeah. organization. In fact, he was talking about the core of capitalism or white-collar capitalism. Mm. That's really, I think, what he meant. Okay. That's kind of the bridge. So in France, that was this despicable guy or uh, woman, you know, who wore the, the, perfect, the perfectly coiffed guy who had that very tight uh, suit on with a tie. Mm -hmm. We'd call the them a hipster. Yeah, yeah. They were yuppie in the 80s. Yeah, yuppie in the 80s, right. Uh, but the key was they were both uh, in France. They probably read Le Monde. They went to the right cafes. They knew about Godard. They had, you know, a vaguely critical idea of capitalism. But they were also incredibly ambitious in a traditional way. Hmm. Um, so we thought um, we didn't. The, the, the word yuppie didn't exist, and the phenomenon was was happening. But I mean, we were kind of helping to identify it in a way, but hmm. we didn't really fully understand where it was going to go. Like, you couldn't predict DIY from that. It was all about consumption, styles of consumption. Yeah. Finding all, and, and the society was rapidly figuring out the only way it was going to grow was to provide those alternative choices, uh, lifestyle choices. And it was all about lifestyle. That's the key, really, not about an individual product. The society figured out they could agglomerate, conglomerate, um, group together commodities in a way that was much more successful 
because you you bought ten. Once you bought the lifestyle, you bought ten. They didn't have to sell you each one. Sure. They sold themselves to you. So um, I think I may have pointed you to this before, but uh, Adam Curtis's documentary, The Century of the Self. Yeah. Uh, the third episode is all right. about Reich and how right. Reich got perverted in the seventies. Right. It's all. It's a very deep examination of this very. Yeah. Topic. Yeah. No, it's a great, uh, good place to continue the discussion. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we had this idea that we were going to make this one section on the cadre. So I had other five other sections sitting on the side, but she said, this is really going to work. It's contemporary. You know, it, it cuts through. It's not about leftism. It's not even about the spectacle per se. It's about how the commodity society uh, is personalized mm. in a way that people will identify with, and they won't be able to, like, say it's about somebody else. Literally, we're trying to make something... A, a, a critique about the people who would go to the video, yeah. who were at the Pacific Film Archive, who were in that world. So um, at that point, um, video film was in a completely different state. Like, for example, there wasn't any distributors of independent films to distribute Chan is Missing other than New Yorker films. And New York, there, there was none. There was no... Sony Classics came later. There was nothing. Mm. There was only one company. Unfortunately, they wanted to, to distribute mm. the movie, right? And so what they distributed was European films. There was no independent American cinema. There was John Cassavetes. I mean, you have to remember, it's not that long ago. This was a really a groundbreaking film in a lot of ways because, you know, there was a lot of ground to break. Sure. You know? And video was all about video art, so video was experimental, like the San Francisco school, where they were painting on film. There was no real... I mean, there were a few documentaries, but they were mainly on PBS. There wasn't a whole wave of thousands of documentaries where you've got a documentary on purple nail polish and, you know, sure. whatever. That, that just didn't exist and at all. And television was still on film. And television was still on film. So to actually make a... Video at that point was a real technical challenge, also because, of course, there was no digital editing. Uh, everything was done on tape. Uh, there was three formats of tape. There was half inch, which is what amateurs used, and so the thicker, wider you got, the more video yeah. quality you got. That was the measure of pixels. Um, there was three quarters inch tape, which was a kind of um, if you could, uh, an expensive art form, and then there was the broadcast, which everyone used, and everyone was editing on tape, and it was one inch, and all the, all the television work for broadcast was done on one inch. And it was really hard to find three-quarter inch equipment, and very expensive. The cameras were expensive, the editing equipment was expensive, it almost didn't exist. So fortunately, because we were in Berkeley, and because we had connections, there was a guy... Uh, running the, the head of the Berkeley Art Museum called David Ross, who later ran the Whitney Museum, uh, big shot in the art world, and he liked us, and he gave us, lent us, the three-quarter inch camera that they had, which was a Sony and very expensive, thousands of dollars. You just couldn't buy it, you couldn't have it. You could barely afford to rent it. He lent it to us. So we decided to do this in a different way than the, than the classic situationist style. Of course, we knew... And there weren't that many models. Guy Debord was pretty much it as far as uh, his early films in the 50s and Society of the Spectacle. There weren't very many models. We decided to try and do something different. We decided to try and, you know, write um, not a drama, but a storyline with actors and characters, episodic, and film it as if we were making a short dramatic film. 
which people really hadn't done. I mean, there wasn't really anybody who'd done that in this context where it was actually theory. Mm -hmm. Because we were actually trying to film theory. We weren't trying to make a parody or a satire or a documentary. We were Just the way Guy Debord had filmed theory, we mm -hmm. were trying to film theory. So uh, we found some actors, we found some locations. We did basically a short film, which was about um, 17, 18 minutes. Uh, we found an a, um, a guy, an actor, to read voiceover, and um, we shot it um, from a script that I'd written, so there was a, a theoretical text, but there was also dialogue that I wrote. Um, you have to see it, it's a rabbit, because it's out there, but you know, I, tr I tried to imagine kind of condensed um, yuppie dialogue. So an example is a guy's getting out of... Uh, um, a swimming pool, fancy swimming pool, a yuppie swimming pool, and his girlfriend says, your food was great, Jean. Maybe you should be a chef. It's just this kind of classic thing where, like, everyone thinks they can do everything, right? Everyone's a screenwriter, everyone's a chef. I mean, it, it fits the current moment, right? It so, really does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so I, I was trying to just create this kind of con very super concentrated bits of what a yuppie would mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, we did this. Um... And we started showing it around to people, and um, they liked it a lot because, wow. I mean, we also had, had titles uh, as well as voiceover. It was kind of a dense work. And we had um, different kinds of... Um, there were titles saying different kinds of cadre. Krishnamurti was in there. Godard was in there. We had each one of them had a, was a different kind of, of cadre. And it, it, was, it was, I think, extremely... Um, tongue-in-cheek, and that was another thing that we were concerned about, because we were trying to create consciously an alternative to the very kind of morbid, somber, uh, French style of theory, and there really was only pretty much DeBoer. Actually, that's not true. The V&A films were funny, and, you know, but they were, that was a completely different style. But for kind of really condensed theory, the only model was DeBoer, so we, we wanted it to be funny, um, kind of off-the-wall. So we finished it, and we started showing it to people, and people got really excited because I guess it was like new, you know. They, they, I mean, they kind of knew about the situationist, but it sort of stood on its own. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we thought, well, maybe we should make some more sections. Um, you know, it was seems to be working, but the problem was once again technical. Uh, for example. Everything was incredibly expensive. So VHS and Betamax, the, the video recorders, had just come out, and they were thousands of dollars. Just to have one was thousands of dollars. And obviously we didn't have thousands of dollars uh, because we wanted to start recording off the air found footage, but uh, Terrell got a job at a uh, uh, commercial uh, video company, and they said, well, we literally didn't tell them. We had, we had t basically 48 hours with this thing at home. We snuck it out of the office, we brought it home, and we said, okay, we'll give ourselves 48 hours because they're out of town, and we're going to record whatever we can record in those 48 hours are going to be the basis of the rest of the video. That was literally how we had to do it. Um, so it made us very focused. So we recorded what was on TV, and we had cable. So we recorded movies, we, we recorded uh, Apocalypse Now, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Three, Day, Three Days of the Condor, whatever was on. Um, we were literally kind of then going to work backwards from the footage that we had. We mm -hmm. recorded commercials, news, all kinds of stuff. and uh, with, with no real map. 
Well, we we had the text, but we didn't really know exactly how it was going to edit together. We just we were accumulating as much footage as possible that seemed reasonable, that seemed to fit. It was kind of an intuitive process, right? Mm -hmm. It was just that's what was interesting. That was kind of like flying blind, right? Yeah. You're kind of like playing a jazz song or something. You mm -hmm. just have to hope that you get the right footage because we kept looking at all the channels. You know, is that the right show? Is that the right show? You know, you can only record one at a time. It didn't have all right. those multiple right. features. It was just kind of a wild weekend where we hoped we would get what we needed um so then okay so we had the footage but like how many hours did he have at the by the end of the weekend oh 10 or 12 hours you know a lot of stuff mm -hmm. more uh we were recording kind of constantly on some channel but we couldn't use it all right um so i mean this is a kind of like almost like a surrealist thing of the exquisite cadaver where you you know you pass a piece of paper around somebody writes a sentence and somebody else adds to it mm -hmm. and you, you know it was really just a completely different way of working than you know people do now right but it was what we had to do. So then, okay, we had all this footage. Like, how the hell are we going to make a program? So we heard about this group in San Francisco. We'd already done the footage. Called the Bay Area Video Coalition. So it was one of these nonprofit groups. It's still around. And, so the one out of Valencia? Yeah. Uh -huh. And they had just purchased, gotten a grant, and purchased the very first time code three-quarter inch editing equipment. Oh, wow. At a huge cost, like even back then, $7,500, $100,000, wow. really expensive. Wow. And we came in there, and this was like a miracle. And we showed up and we said, you know, this is what we're doing. And they weren't really political. They said, well, this is amazing. We're just going to let you edit here for months. Not only edit here, we're going to edit this for you and for free. Wow. And they gave us, even back then, thirty or $40,000 worth of edits, hundreds of hours. Oh, right, right. There were hundreds of edits in this, and they had to all be done carefully, and the editor was all completely donated. Amazing, right? Mm -hmm. This whole project cost $500, <laughs> you know, out of our pocket. We made a lot of, we made a profit from it, mm -hmm. you know, because sure. it was shown a lot of places. So we, we sat there, and, and here's where my ex was really great. She really knew how to edit. She knew how to do humor. Mm. We added other footage just to break it up. It was, you know, I don't take really any credit for this part. She just did a really great job of editing. I mean, this, this video is really, I mean, there's some incredible cuts, like going from uh, this kind of traveling shot of Auschwitz uh, with really somber music to this insane Kellogg's uh, shredded wheat commercial. I mean, the jump is just, it seems odd, but it's like, it just shows you, you know, the craziness of the world we live in. But it's a brilliant jump cut. Mm -hmm. Um, so we spent months editing it, uh, you know, not full time, but, you know, we didn't have to pay for it. So, you know, and this was also actually the same year it turned out that Chan is Missing was coming out. I feel like Einstein, I think he did all of his great stuff in his 20s. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of, I was the same age, right? It was like that one year. And I also wrote three cookbooks in, in the same period. Hmm. It was like, you know, I just had a lot of energy, um, and had kids too, um, but, so anyway, so we worked on it, and um, it was done. And so then here's another technical issue, like, how do you show something like this, mm -hmm. right? Um, we could broadcast it, but, I mean, there, wasn't any, there weren't any venues. PBS was not sure. going to show this because there was so much copyright footage. And, yeah, you know, right. there was like five minutes of Apocalypse Now yeah. in, in one chunk. <laughs> there was just no way. So... We had to figure out how to show it. So there were festivals, the San Francisco Video Festival. And, and we were completely odd because, first of all, our thing ran, our program ran 42 minutes. Everything else was like 10 minutes. Oh, wow. It was a completely different mm -hmm. content and length. It, it made no sense in the context. 
But it found a home, and so initially, um, technical problem again. There was no. They had video projectors, but they were very weak. They weren't digital. They were very murky. So you literally would project on a screen uh, this very almost dark image that you couldn't read very well. It was almost out of focus. It was a three-gun projector uh, called an Advent, and it was just what people had. And they were incredibly expensive, like ten or twenty thousand dollars. I recall them. Yeah, but you couldn't see what was being projected because it was three different colors. Yeah, exactly, yeah. being projected and trying mm-hmm. to meet up. Yeah. So we showed it first at the um, Pacific Film Archive. And um, it was full because we had friends. But then we had a friend who was one of the owners of the Roxy Theater in San Francisco. And we thought, well, we want to reach this kit, this street audience. We really want to have you know, that kind of thing. So they promoted it really well. I remember it was a great night. Uh, it was just a really you know, all-black clad street San Francisco crowd. And 600 people came. It was, you know... And then it started making the museum circuit. We shone all over. Um, I started to get asked uh, to speak. I went to the Chicago at the Art Institute. You know, I realized, oh, well, you know, I could probably, you know, I don't have an MFA, but at that point you didn't need one. I, I could have a career at this. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, explaining the situationist in this. I could definitely have a career with this, you know, and make some more. But I, I just, you know, I couldn't do it. It was just not something... Um, I had my heart in. I just couldn't. I took on the poverty of student life to heart, and I just didn't imagine that I was going to be able to really sit there and lecture. Um, so uh, I was thinking a bit about um, what had happened after that in terms of the tradition of um, situationist-related film, and I realized I think we were pretty much the only ones... There, there have been a lot of interesting experiments. I sent you a couple of... Uh, did you get that link that I sent you of a couple of films that are put out by these people? You know what I'm talking about? I'm the sure. top films. They did the, this one film um, where uh, they've edited together a lot of police film footage. Mm. And I'm trying to find the reference here. Um, they, uh, the question is, who is the worst? who are the worst people in town? Um... And it turns out, of course, at the end, the cops are killing the cops because the the most diabolical people in town are the cops. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's interesting because it's kind of a mashup, but it, it doesn't really attempt to film um, dense content. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really difficult problem to take on. Sure. And I'm not sure if, um, I mean, VNA's idea, which... Um, the, can the dialectic break bricks? I don't know if people have seen that. Is putting it's it's putting um, radical ideas in the mouth of um, martial art genre. Uh, yeah. genre. It's a film. genre film. It's a genre film, and in some ways it works, and in other ways it doesn't because you know it it has to match up really well with the action. There's a lot of tricky things about it. Uh, so he actually took the 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 format that was really and he acknowledges this invented by Woody Allen in a film called What's Up Tiger Lily. Mm-hmm. And I know this sounds kind of like a nihilistic statement, but I actually find that film much more satisfying. I think it's more entertaining, and I actually think it's more upsetting in a way, mm. even though it isn't radical theory. It's just an alternative kind of crazy plot, like an Marx Brothers plot. I haven't seen it as an, seen adult, it? as an adult. Okay, so, so there's that genre, which is, you know, literally taking an existing fictional film and adding language to it. There's Debord's style, which is... 
I, I, he says it isn't illustrative, but I feel like it is illustrative of having a voiceover narrator speaking, and then mm -hmm. there's very, the world illustrates his points. And, you know, I would say our project was an attempt to find a different approach, and a lot of it is in the DeBoer style, because maybe half of it is voiceover mm -hmm. narration in that kind of, I know more than you do style. Well, to turn this into a different type of a conversation, because it. It, it does feel like your uh, your content is thinning. Um, I think that the thing that the SI absolutely required in the English language and never got was someone who could write a novel, a situationist novel mm -hmm. that that brought these ideas to light, that mm -hmm. that used the softer touch of fiction mm -hmm. rather than than the hard punch of theory and voiceover, mm -hmm. and and that that until that that writer rears their head and uh -huh. shows themselves right. a lot of these ideas are never going to be sort of beyond the, the 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 lovers of theory right and so i think the the contemporary version of that is you've got a couple of and i wish i i should have looked up the titles there are a couple of eco anarchist films that are about sabotage mm -hmm. Um, one of them is a woman who's a journalist who infiltrates this anarchist group. Yeah. You know the films I'm talking mm -hmm, about. I'm mm -hmm. sorry to prepare with you. I, I mean, The West is one of them. Yeah, I The think. West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so but no, but I'm saying, but th this is as close as we have, mm -hmm. I think, to that kind of approach. I know, but that's too ham handed, right? Yeah, I mean, it's very ham handed. I mean, the, and the, and the, the ideas aren't really radical, they're, right. they're, they're ordinary ideas. Uh, so, there is an understanding that, that can work. And I'm not saying I'm the person to do that, but there is, a, there is an understanding that. that you do need the emotional content that comes with a narrative that's missing from yeah. every documentary by definition. Yeah. Um, and I heard that Jake Gyllenhaal is go has you know you, you reported that is going to make a a documentary about that. Wow. I, when I read that article in Rolling Stone, which was you know a few months before he signed the deal to to make the film, um, it's about um, anti ISIS anarchists fighting right, in right, the Rojava. Yeah. I thought this is a, this is an amazing story, and this has the potential. I think, although you but, know, but for me, this is not no really because it's point. displaced. Yeah, it's displaced. Yeah. It's not at the core of this. Uh, yeah. So I, the, I think. The, yeah, go the, ahead. I mean, well, I, I just think that you know, the, one of the strongest points that the SI made is that the quote unquote bourgeoisie or the, or the or the yuppies are the, the the point that they are just as oppressed and just as programmed. In, in the current regime, mm -hmm. that point is left totally outside of these films that are basically still about heroic people mm -hmm. and how you can make a difference if you're just heroic and believe all the right things. And and I, I don't think that that's... Yeah, I mean, the idea of, of the fabric of daily life, which is what yeah. a smaller film is about, um, that's in Van Gym as well, how do you, making that unfold in a way where you actually... The tricky part, which you know we all know, is how do you present seamlessly a radical transformation or a transformation of yeah. somebody who starts off as an ordinary alienated citizen yeah. and finds that he can't live in this world and ends up doing something different um, and showing that in a way that's really powerful and poetic yeah. I think is you know a huge challenge and I don't know of any movie that's ever done it frankly and I don't know if yeah I mean there's whispers of it in, in a lot of cinema but, but yeah the, whispers the, sure but Godard the, tried to, to yeah. do it but I, I, I almost think that the novel is the better form for this, uh -huh. that maybe could be turned into a film later. Right. But the point is is that you have to have a skill set that I just don't... 
I don't know how you create a good writer who also has right on politics. Well, know, Michelle large, Bernstein supposedly did that in her novels. Um, I wouldn't call her novels good. No, I wouldn't either. I mean, yeah. everyone was like saying, "Oh, this is wonderful." Here you see transformation of daily life in uh, you know at the core yeah. of the situationist movement. I think it has to come from the other direction first. They have to be a good writer first, and then find. I mean, in all modesty, there are moments in the conversation and the dialogue of. Um, the cadre section mm-hmm. that head in the, they aren't real characters but there there's a way that the dialogue is condensed and focused that shows the possibility of how and that's what really people really reacted to mm. is this kind of really realistic dialogue and yet it's not realistic you know it's and Godard does that to a certain extent he has people talking but in the end it seems more forced and how to how to make it not forced I mean I think this is an interesting way to, to conclude this is to is to throw out the problem I mean yeah. I was hoping that's where we'd end up um, yeah I mean we still have a bit of time but mm-hmm. but if, if you want to cut it early that's fine I I guess you know when we talk about the great American films you know in the top three great American films would be Godfather 2 Right. And part of what works for Godfather 2 that, again, I don't see any radical writers utilize in any meaningful way is something like nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, what you experience in Godfather 2 is a nostalgia you didn't live and you don't know anybody who lived that nostalgia, mm-hmm. but, it, but it rings true. And that's the problem with a lot of radical, even radical fiction, is that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a memory that anybody shares. It feels just like a fantasy that was, you know, like, let's say Russia 100 years ago, right? This is... 2017, 100 years after the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about it because no one in the Anglo Anglosphere can make a compelling nostalgic story about Bolshevik Russia. I mean, I was working on a screenplay idea, which I'm not going to do, so I don't, I don't mind disclosing it. And anyway, ideas are everyone's property, right? Yeah. But um, the idea of what would happen if... And I'm not sick, and this isn't about me, but what would happen if someone... You know, maybe 60s, 70s, finds out that um, they're going to die and they have a terminal disease, which, you know, happens all the time to people. Um, You know, maybe not the six-month lifespan one with the pancreatic cancer. That's kind of the extreme scenario, but it happens, or brain tumor, but it happens. So what would happen if, um, I mean, there would be a setup, and I haven't, you know, figured out the setup, but what would happen if that person realizes that they have a very short amount of time to live and... Um, it was based on my reading of um, the book about Henry Kissinger. Hmm. Um, and that person decided that uh, they weren't going to just, like, A, kill themselves, or B, go out quietly. They were going to um, kill Henry Kissinger. Mm-hmm. This is the, I mean, I think this is a fairly common fantasy people have. I shy Andy Warhol being a yeah, similar. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and, and what... What would that take, and how, how would you write that so that it's kind of a natural... I mean, if it were someone like me, of course, I have kids and grandkids, so there's like this whole question of, you know, can you really do that? Do you, do you really want to leave that? You know, and I think someone said to me, well, they would be proud of you. Mm, no, maybe. I, maybe, <laughs> you know, no, but I mean, or maybe not, right? Yeah. But I mean, it, you know, th- that kind of story, uh, because of course, you know, not to digress too much, but, you know, he, he's probably killed more people than any yes. living American by far, millions and millions, and he's still out there, you know, meeting with Trump, and he's gotten away with it. He will die in bed. Yeah, he will die in bed. And so. Like most, like most tyrants. Right. So, I mean, that's a kind of angle on that that, you know, in some ways is a, is a bit more political than what we're talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. it's got a kind of classic, you know, yeah. kill the tyrant theme. But 
Um, it depends on who that person meets along the way, and sure. you know. But I mean, I can I could see that process of going from thinking, well, this person, um, you know, can I do this or should I do this, to doing it as being a kind of. Uh, it's more of a traditional existential idea, but I think um, I think you might need something that dramatic and powerful to carry it. Because I'm not sure if a soft story about um, personal transformation is going to work in this. Yeah, it's hard theory. to. I mean, anyway, I, mean, I, I would love for there to be a whole genre of this type of fiction, not just one book, but right, but sure. yeah, yeah. But but I, I I did get excited about that idea because I thought you know it's amazing that this person. I mean. You know, once I mean, most people don't know what this person has done, but it's amazing when you find out that he's still walking around. Yeah. Um, and instead, people go and shoot uh, people in a mall, right? And risk their total lives. strangers. Right, total strangers. Whereas this guy is so familiar. Anyway, but I. There was actually a uh, not so amusing Facebook thread about a month ago, where someone asked the question: If this were your last day on Earth, what would you do? And uh, Bob Black responded to this person and said that uh, they would buy a gun and come to Berkeley and kill me. What? Yeah. <laughs> he said that? He did. It, it's very funny because people think that, that for some reason we have taken a friendly attitude towards Bob because our... our because he has some good ideas. Well, because our separation letter was called uh, a eulogy for Bob Black. They Somehow they're reading that as if we're like... Gently passing him into the night, <laughs> he literally threatened to come to Berkeley and kill me. Yeah, but and, and the other thing is, I'm looking at my notes here, and what I said was humor is essential. Obviously, the Henry Kissinger film doesn't fit that category. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really think that's you know. Although if Woody Allen did it, with, with <laughs> did a assassination movie by Henry Kissinger, yeah, I bet you he'd make it. Funny. Yeah, no, no, that's the point. The point is humor and surprise. Um, are really essential, and I think that's you know if you can say anything about the, I mean VNA does have jokes. It's not really funny. It's funny. It's, it's funny. funny. It's funny. The first time you see it, you laugh out loud. You it's roll funny. in the aisles. Yeah, yeah. But Those, it is it is thinner than it could than it. It would be awesome if it were if it were less thin. Okay, so I've given you know I I, I presented myself with a challenge at, at the uh, t talk that I gave um, recently in a museum show about the situation is, and so now I'm going to start I'm going to try and figure out if there's some way, I mean I have written screenplays I mean I know the form I'm not a good screenwriter um, I do understand it but I, I'm in, a, in another way I'm kind of amazed that with all and this is where I think I would like to leave this with all the editing equipment that people have with all the ideas that are out there with all the opportunity that I mean I, I think it became pretty clear how not that it wasn't fun what, that what we did but it, it separated the the, the 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 slackers from the serious people to get something done like that yeah. it took years and improvisation and a huge amount of effort friendships and, and generosity of strangers generosity of strangers friendships I mean that was not an easy task to put that on the screen which is one of the reasons why people didn't do it right and it was, and it was only 42 minutes and it was only 42 minutes it was a daunting task how, how did it impact your relationship do you think that your relationship with your partner would have had the same arc with or without that film I think or, it made it better for sure okay. I think it made you know I think there was you shared, know, shared project she, is meaningful yeah shared, there were two Mm -hmm. Well, no, there were three. There was a son. There sure, was, sure. you know, there were three in a very short period of time. I think it created, a, and it meant that we're not, you know, living together, but we're still incredibly close based on, I think, that concrete mm -hmm. um, collaboration. Anyway, so yeah, I would, I would like to, say, you know, I think that that, um, 
is a really interesting challenge. And but but I'm just amazed because now there's so much video being produced and and so many documentaries. But like there doesn't. I mean, I'm sure I'm missing a lot. But there really doesn't seem to be anybody in the territory that we're describing that I know of. I mean, I shouldn't really say it because there's so much going on. But I don't. It doesn't pop out at me. Well, I don't think that radicalism has a vibrant artistic community anymore. Right. There are definitely people doing videos, yeah, but they're right. basically just stripped down propaganda pieces. Right. And and that tons of documentaries that are single subject. Yeah. Right. And most of those are some sort of a plea to liberals. I mean, but I mean, words, like the politics like to, even that like, good. like to turn Voyeurs. Uh, most profound theoretical ideas into a fiction film. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that seems like a brilliant challenge, but it also seems like I don't know who's going to do that or yeah. if it's doable. I mean, it, but it, it seems like it would really make a difference if you could actually show and, that. And of course, the tools are so much more demo democratized. That's what I'm saying. So, I, I, but I'm not true. seeing, you know, uh, I, I'm seeing a lot of really interesting single subject documentaries, but they're always fragmented and they're always, I guess you've got Adam Curtis as one of the guys who's really going mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. Although, um, arguably, his work is not radical. No, it's, and arguably, it's, it's, it's morbidly serious. And, mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's not. Well, he has funny bits. He has funny bits, but, you know, it's pontifical. It has that yeah. voiceover mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. You've got a hierarchical structure in the yeah. way the material is presented. For but, sure. I mean, he definitely is trying. So anyway, I think um, well, hopefully someone will hear this and communicate their ideas. I'd like to open up the discussion here. Also, there was a, a note of someone wanting to um, take questions. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you want to try, yeah, that, we can make it, we can make that happen. Yeah, for a future. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to. You uh, you have three more that you definitely want to do. Two at least. Okay. Yeah, um, maybe maybe we'll have the third one be be questions. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, I mean, um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, this allowed me to, um, I mean, it extended the period of situationist activity for me, but it also was great because there was a lot of different kinds of feedback, and I got drawn into different social situations with, as opposed to having a book, you know, having this kind of material as your mm -hmm. calling card or whatever yeah. really created and, and introduced me to a lot of people who ne wouldn't ever probably have read the material, but who identified with it that's the whole point of film right it's well and that's the terrifying thing is that we we are now in a post-literate uh community of people we're trying to be in conversation with right they're not going to read the books yeah i mean even the anthology is rarer and rarer that i meet people who've actually internalized and digested that and i think that that's more important than society of the spectacle even though i love society of the spectacle right no i mean i've had several people say to me they watch this once a year or something the right. video right. you know and right. talk about it which yeah. is oh, no i think I'm, i don't I'm understand thrilled. it oh, oh they, they watch call it sleep yeah they watch right. call it sleep uh, and they and they just you know mm -hmm. several people they say you know it's like because there is a lot of energy in it you know and it does provide a different kind of stimulus than yeah than the written word anyway hmm. so well, okay well thank you very much yeah sure